Hello, and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. I'm Joe I. Ping, and on today's episode, admissions consultant Tahira McCoy moderates a panel of six law school admissions deans from across the country to discuss the current application cycle. They discuss areas where candidates miss the mark on their applications, and they give admissions advice in terms of timelines, LSAT scores, and scholarship consideration. Throughout, they also take questions from the audience. So without further ado, please enjoy. I want to thank all of you for joining me, and good evening, everyone. I'm Taj McCoy. I'm so glad to welcome all of you here tonight for our first Admissions Deans Roundtable Talk. I am a Seven Stage Admissions Consultant and former Law School Admissions Dean and Director, as well as Career Services Director. With respect to admissions, I most recently served as the Director of Admissions and Scholarship Programs at Berkeley Law. My pronouns are she, her. I am excited, extremely excited to welcome this particular group of colleagues and panelists representing law schools across the country. In the interest of time, friends, I'll call on you one at a time. If you could share your current school, your title, and the number of years of admissions experience you have, I would appreciate it. I'm going to go in order that you are on my screen. And so I'm going to start with Dean Heck. Hi, everybody. I'm Michelle Heck. I am currently the Dean of Admissions at the University of Richmond School of Law, and I have been working in some form or fashion of admissions for the last 20 years. Dean Simmons. Hi, everybody. Tracy Simmons, Assistant Dean for Admissions, Diversity Initiatives, and Financial Aid at the University of San Diego School of Law. And I've been in this space for a little over 23 and a half years. So hence the gray hair. (laughs) (laughs) Dean McShay. Hello, everyone. I'm Sean McShay. I am the Assistant Dean for Graduate Enrollment Management, and I have been in the industry for going on 21 years. So looks like we have a similar class here going on. (laughs) Dean McShay is currently at Boston College. Oh, I missed that part. (laughs) That part. Yeah. For our directions. It's past past 8 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) Dean Krim. Good evening, everyone. My name is Maya Krim. I am the Assistant Dean for JD Admission and Scholarships at Loyola University Chicago School of Law, and I have been in law school admissions for 20 years. Dean Mack. Good evening, everyone. My name is Bianca Mack. I am the Associate Dean for Equity Admissions and Student Affairs at the University of North Carolina School of Law in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And this is my 15th year in admissions. So I get to be a newcomer tonight. (laughs) I feel like a newcomer. So I get to be the newcomer. Dean Smith. Yes, good evening, everyone. My name is Dexter Smith. I'm the Assistant Dean of Enrollment Management at Emory University School of Law in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is my 18th cycle in admission, plus I had two additional cycles in career services. Fantastic. Well, welcome to all of you panelists. Thank you so much for being here. So travel season has come to an end, and we're now very heavily into application review. Dean Smith, what does that look like at Emory? Well, right now we are, as you say, we are kind of transitioning out of, you know, the recruiting part. We're heavily and quickly transitioning to file review. So that's kind of, you know, getting everything in order, starting to make sure all of the files are completed, meaning all of the materials are in, starting to divvy up the files and start reading and preparing for the exhaustion, (laughs) the fun fun exhaustion. Yes. Fantastic. Now, throughout the panel, I will be fielding questions to my panelists. For those in the audience, please feel free to drop questions in the Q&A widget. I will be folding some of those questions in as time permits. So don't be afraid to jump in and start dropping in some questions. But in the meantime, why don't we continue on? 
Some schools are communicating today early decision offers. Dean McShay, what does early decision look like at Boston College? Sure. Well, this is actually our first year for early decision, but it was actually fantastic. So we are in the process right now of evaluating candidates. Our decisions will be released and we've notified candidates when they apply that we're going to release decisions on December 15th. So it's coming up real soon for us. And then after early decision, we'll go right into the regular pool. So that's where we are right now. So early decision before the holiday break, and then we'll shift into regular once that's done. Great. And and Dean Simmons, you just had your early decision deadline this past week, right? December 1st, yes. And what does the program look like to you? Pretty similar to Dean McShay in Boston College. We will commit to making sure that all of the early decision applicants have a decision by December 22nd, which is the day that we will close for the holiday break. And so that's going to be our priority and focus for the next couple of weeks. Okay. Dean Heck, how is your program distinguishable? As far as early decision, I will say we have a little bit later deadline. So we actually go until December 15th, receiving applications and stuff on that. But we too try and get through all of them before that we leave on break on December the 22nd as well. So we kind of give, I'm not going to say rolling admissions, but some rolling admissions because we'll get a lot of those out before the 22nd and then the last of them that come in. And then Dean Smith, your program is different in that you have a deadline that's all the way in March and you also have a guaranteed scholarship. Is that right? Yes, we do. Our our early decision program has been, we will begin, the. if you select early decision, we will begin review 15 days or you'll have your decision 15 days after the decision has been completed. We do provide a scholarship for those who elect early decision and are accepted into the program. Now, I get this question pretty frequently when it comes to early decision programs. You know, a lot of candidates want to know, like, is is priority in early decision primarily about those students who say, you know, your school is my top choice? Is priority really about, you know, the numbers and strong numerical indicators? Who might want to field this particular question first? Dean Smith. Ours isn't isn't based solely on the numbers or the academic indicators. We look at those who have indicated, you know, of course, by selecting early decision and using utilizing an application. For those who have whatever their vested interest is in attending in attending Emory and who have decided that if they are accepted, that they will withdraw from their other consideration and that they will elect to attend us. But it is not solely based on the academic indicators. You know, like I said, it's, it's largely based on interest. I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here. I, I, I certainly, I mean, we are all using a holistic approach in our evaluation of, of all candidates, all programs. For our early decision program, there are different tiers within the program and there are three different options. And so the top two tiers do have some quantitative factors that are associated with them. And I take it a, a little bit farther in the sense that I give that scholarship amount before you even even apply. So if you apply to, you know, our top early decision program, I tell you where successful students typically are within that 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 matrix. And if you apply for that and are selected, that's the scholarship that you're going to have. So I have kind of a, a, a top scholars level, a mid scholars level, and then a no scholarship consideration level. So so all three of those. So I think we all have a holistic approach, but there are some quantitative factors that are part of our early decision program. Certainly. Anything else to add? Dean Heck, were you going to go? Go for it. 
I was just going to say that one of the challenges I think is that there is a lot of information out there or misinformation, perhaps that irrespective of your scores, if you apply early decision, that you're more likely to get in and you still have to be a competitive applicant. And also that you really do need to submit a very thorough, thoughtful application. And I think, you know, if you're going early decision because you think that improves your chances of getting in, but your application is sloppy, you still haven't done yourself a favor by applying early because it just means in all likelihood that you could be waitlisted or denied early versus kind of giving yourself the chance to submit a thoughtful, thorough, really competitive application. Mm-hmm. Dean Heck, before you jump in, I'm going to pose this question to you from the audience. How do early decision things work? How does this benefit the students? Is this something that the applicant decides to do when they apply? Well, that's actually what the comment I was going to make is, is knowing that like early decision is not for everyone. You know, there is the belief sometimes that, oh, it's going to get me in, but it is a binding commitment. The students that we typically see in the program, you know, they've done their research ahead of time. Like it is a decision you're making when you're applying and this is your number one choice. You've already made that choice before you filled out applications, before you know what the scholarship package is. So it's a decision not to be taken lightly and to be really considerate about what you want to do before you get to that point. You know, sometimes there are, location reasons, you know, somebody may have a significant other or a family or something, you know, a lot of times with early decision, there is a factor that this is why not only what the program and stuff is. And so just keeping in mind, it's a very serious decision because we have had students over the years that didn't like the scholarship package all of a sudden, and then think they're going to get out of their binding you're going into the legal profession, you're reading or should be reading thoroughly when you are applying to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. And so if that school is the school you definitely would be on a shadow of a doubt when to go to, then by all means, apply early decision. You're going to get your answer sooner. There may be additional scholarship, but just know it may not be the scholarship that you want to, and you're still committed to that location. That's helpful. I did get one more question from the audience, and this would be in particular for law schools that have kind of a rollover system, right? If you have early decision and and you're not offered a seat, but you're rolled into the regular pool, the question is, what are some of the reasons why early decision applicants make it move to regular decision? And what does it mean for their overall chance of success? Who might, who has a regular decision kind of rollover system at their school? Michelle? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's one of the things to keep in mind, just like when a student is waitlisted, you know, there are things that we like, there are things that we think could be a little bit stronger, you know, and sometimes for an early decision candidate to be rolled over, it may be, you know, I was reading a file today that the GPA is making an upward trend, but we're still missing a full year of grades. And so we want to make sure that that is the upward trend and stuff that it's going in. Sometimes students have the ability to that they're retaking the LSAT, like they've already scheduled it for January. And we've again seen them progress or maybe a little bit more time in between that they've been out of school. So it's saying that we're still really interested in something. Otherwise we may have gone ahead and rejected the candidate, but we just want to see a little bit more of something and something else could be added to the file to still be considered. Mm -hmm. The final ED question that I have from another person in the audience. And I think this one really goes to you, Dean Smith, because for some, for most of the others, the deadline is, is going to be passed by the time the January LSAT comes. But for your particular program, the January LSAT is before your final deadline. Is the January LSAT something that can be considered for your program, Dean Smith? Yes, it is. Yes, we will take up to January. January is the last LSAT that we will take. 
Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Now, kind of moving forward in our conversation, obviously scholarships are a huge subject for our listeners. And I'd like to be able to go down the line with each of you in terms of whether you consider scholarship awards at the same time as admission or after, whether you consider candidates for need-based and our merit awards, and whether you have a negotiation or reconsideration process in place to consider candidates for potential scholarship increases after an initial pass. And I'm going to start with you, Dean Krim. So our scholarships are primarily merit-based and candidates are considered and awarded at the at the time of admission. We do have a handful of specialized scholarship and fellowship opportunities that admitted students can apply for with the deadline of March 15th that could be awarded in addition to a merit scholarship. We also do not have a negotiation process. Okay, great. Dean Mack. So yes, similar to what Dean Krim was sharing, we are making our scholarship decisions simultaneously. So we sent out almost 100 decisions, 100 admissions a week ago. So we do not have an early decision process, but we are rolling. So we we got out a number of decisions in the last week or so. Scholarships went out with those decisions. Similar to Dean Krim, we try to be as competitive as we can be with those offers. They are primarily merit-based. And while we do have a one-time reconsideration request that we allow applicants, we really don't have the budget to make a lot of increases. So typically, what we've offered you is the best that we can offer you. And it's historically consistent, as Dean McShay was saying about, you know, kind of the band where you are and thinking about what have prior applicants looked like. So we we have really kind of honed what we are offering to applicants. And that that's really all the room that we have. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Dean Smith. Thank you. Yes, we, we offer the majority of our scholarships are merit-based based on your academic credentials when you apply. We actually do not award those at the point in which we make the decision. Those come at a later date. The offers come at a later date. We do not offer need-based, but we do offer one additional full tuition competitive scholarship, which, which also you're selected as a finalist, requires an interview as well. We, as far as our negotiation policy, we do not negotiate. As you have already heard, we, we try to make sure that the offers that we extend initially are our best offers. A lot of time and energy and analysis goes into us providing those offers. Thank you. Dean McShay. Thank you so much. So our admissions offers, with the exception of, you know, specialty programs like public service scholars and our early decision programs, those are the only exceptions. They're generally separated. Our admissions decisions after the admissions process, after the early decision process is a rolling base. We start releasing admissions decision for the regular decision group in mid-January. We start scholarship decisions in early March. So they are two separate processes, two separate branches of our unit and our operation. And so all of the admitted students that we send to the financial aid committee are then considered for merit-based aid. Our awards generally range from about 5000 to about 50,000 per year. And our average is somewhere around 20 to 25 a year, depending upon the class. So it doesn't really stray too much farther than that. We do not negotiate our scholarship offers and we have language to that effect in our acceptance letter that reminds students that we do not negotiate scholarships. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Dean Simmons. 
So we make our merit scholarship offers at the time of admission. So if you're eligible, you will receive that information at the time you receive your admit letter. We do not negotiate scholarships effective, I guess, what's today? December 6, 2022. So we will no longer negotiate scholarships. The process is pretty unwieldy. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of potential for inequity. And so we are going to leave with our best offer. We do have a significant number of private scholarships that we will award later in the spring. Many of them are need-based. Some are tied to public interest work and, you know, IP, construction law, transactional work, et cetera, et cetera. And so all admitted students would be notified at some point later in the spring about those scholarships and whether they need to apply or whether we're just going to award them based on the criteria. But as of today, no longer negotiating scholarships. And Dean Heck. So very similar, I think, to everyone else on the call. We do award scholarships at the time of admissions. The one little bit different is all of our students are actually eligible for up to a $4,000 scholarship one summer if they do government, non-for-profit, or public interest. So that is on top of all of our student scholarships. That being said, we don't typically negotiate. A student is welcome to, you know, let us know. But as Dean Mack said, that doesn't really ever happen or change. We do, however, reevaluate students as their GPA and or LSAT score may change, even though we, you know, give the offer at the time of admissions, if the student continues to improve, that is taken into consideration, which I think a lot of the others on this call are nodding, the same thing happens and stuff that we'll keep looking and stuff until, you know, the class actually matriculates and gets in in August. Awesome. Thank you for that. Now, this roundtable actually came about because Dean Simmons and I had a conversation and she and I were talking about some unusual things that she was seeing in in terms of application review. And there seemed to be kind of a dichotomy between actual application requirements and what was actually being submitted. And at Dean Simmons, would you mind sharing a for instance? For instance, if an application question says this information is required, that's really not up for debate. I'm unclear about why that's coming up, but I think it's really important for a candidate to understand that each law school, every ABA law school out there has crafted their application for their applicant pool, for their law school, for their community, et cetera. And so the questions that we pose are there for a reason. So it's super important that you demonstrate your ability to follow directions out the gate. For those of us that have faculty reviewers on our committee or deans of students and other folks that we work with, This is going to be a first sign to them that they may not want you to be part of their community or their law school because of your inability to follow directions. And it may seem harsh, but the reality is that the ability to follow directions is just germane to being a lawyer. You don't get to show up in court when you want. You don't get to submit the number of pages you want, things of that nature. And so to kind of start this process off on that note is not a good thing. Last point for now is that the other part of this is getting into debates or arguments with our teams and on our staff about these types of things. That is just not wise. Oftentimes, these are the folks that sometimes are going to be the ones that have your back when we say, hey, I need three people from the wait list today. And I say, hey, Victoria, you know, who's been engaged? Who's been involved? Super active. They're probably going to first think of the people who were kind, respectful, nice, didn't push back on every single thing. And so that's just something to think about as you navigate this process. Follow directions. They're there for a reason. And oftentimes they're there to help you. And if you want to stand out, following directions is the way to do it because so many candidates actually do not follow directions. That's really helpful. And, And similarly, you know, obviously each school has a different application and review process. 
or for my panelists, you know, for your respective schools and admissions teams, is there a part of your application, whether it's a specific question, an optional essay, or something else where candidates most often miss the mark when it comes to submitting their application materials? And I'm seeing nodding from a couple of you. So I'm going to start with you, Dean Heck. Yeah, so we actually have a question on the application that asks why Richmond Law? It is probably the number one thing that people put a placeholder in, like come back later to, or sure, that they're putting a placeholder so they can get through the rest of the application. But then the lack of attention to detail and reading their file before they turn it in, they never go back and fill it in. And so huge red flags and marks and everything else, because you didn't even take enough time to read through your application before you hit the submit button. So it's not even sometimes what the answer is. I mean, we're looking for a well-written, you know, grammatically, you know, something that is is truly why you're looking at our school is what we're looking at. But to just completely put nothing in it and put a placeholder happens way too many times. I also saw nodding from Dean Mack. So along the same lines, we have the same question. Our question appears after the traditional personal statement. So I feel like we get a little bit more response <laughs> than what Dean Hack is saying. But along the same lines, there are people who just don't, right? I mean, you can do it as part of your personal statement and or there might be one line. That's really when you're thinking about, well, this other person, you know, I'm I'm in this band and I didn't get admitted and I have these numbers, numbers ain't enough for most of us, right? We, we need more. So the numbers tell us you can do the work. Everything else tells us we want you in our community. So as Dean Simmons was saying, you really want to be memorable for doing everything you could to submit a strong and fully complete application to our specifications. And those specifications are going to be a little bit nuanced and different for each of our institutions and the other institutions to which you may be applying. So really think about that. Please don't send me a letter that says Duke Law is your first choice. I wish you well. <laughs> I can make some calls if that's really your first choice. But you know, that's the attention to detail we're talking about. And no one is begrudging you where else you're applying. We all know that the average applicant is applying to given institutions. We all have overlap with each other. That is perfectly okay. But when you're interacting with each of us, please remember <laughs> And pay attention to which application you're working on at a given time, because mm -hmm. we are paying attention to all of that. And as Dean Simmons said, you know, for the way our process works, our faculty and other staff on the admissions committee are never going to see your application if our admissions professionals are not, you know, recommending you for admission. So it, it's really important to do all the things that Dean Simmons and Heck were saying. That's helpful. And I actually have kind of a relevant audience question that some of you have now answered. It says, hello, I remember Dean McShay telling me during the last forum that YX school statements make sense for waitlisted candidates, but not for regular candidates. And they said, I'd like to hear what the other deans think. And so we've now heard from Dean Heck and Dean Mack. Dean Krim, what's your feeling about YX school statements? So yeah, so our personal statement prompt is fairly general in looking for why law school, you know, what are your motivations for continuing your education, that sort of thing. But we also would like to know why they're applying, you know, to Loyola out of all the schools. So why law and why Loyola are, you know, things that we are curious about. Perfect. And Dean Smith. 
I would agree with Dean Cram. We don't ask a specific question. It's a very general question, but finding the opportunity to to kind of squeeze that into the into the application, whether it be in some type of addenda, whether it be as you are wrapping up your personal statement and kind of tell how Emory fits into uh, fits into your equation, it never hurts. It never hurts. And it shows that, you know, one, depending on how you crafted your uh, the rest of your file, it shows that you've done some due diligence and understanding kind of how we fit into your plans. And then, you know, hey, those are the things that single you out. It's not a just a general statement. It's something that's catered to to us individually. Mm-hmm. Dean Simmons. Oh, gosh. This was hard for me because I know that there's a huge trend to do the YX statements. But the problem for me is that most of them feel super contrived. And I read it and I think, oh, this really isn't for USD law. This is a template that the student created. And they literally are just changing the school 10 times. I I can't think of the number of times that I got that excited about something that I said it 10 times in three or four paragraphs, but it doesn't, it just doesn't come across as authentic and genuine. And so that's my big issue. I, I don't know if there's a real big distinction between whether you're a regular admit or a waitlist admit. I think Dean McShay's advice is for you to be thoughtful about that as you kind of navigate your five to 10, 20 applications. But the reality is that you also want to take that opportunity to be genuine. And if you're really, really interested in Loyola Chicago, you know, submitting a statement that talks about how much you love Chapel Hill just doesn't really work. If you're talking about how excited you are to go to Richmond and you're like, and I love Atlanta because you were working on the Emory application before and you forgot to change it in one of those eight spots, it just doesn't work. And so I think for me, that's my big challenge is that unless you're going to do it and do it well and actually take the time to be thoughtful and say, here is why I'm super excited about George Mason, because these three professors are people that I would love to be mentored by. And here's what I read about them. And so I would love to be part of that. Or here's why I'm super excited to go to Miami because they have this institute on X. And the more I understand about that area of law, I'm super inspired and motivated. Unless you're going to take the time to do it that way, as opposed to kind of the the easy way out, oftentimes it just doesn't come across as authentic. And so I would be really, really careful about it because I think, again, if we go back to the very beginning, details matter. And I think we all have faculty members and academic support folks and writing professors who've been on our committees who, once they see any type of mistake like that, you are done. Like they don't care what your LSAT score is. They don't care what your GPA is. It's like, this person doesn't pay attention to detail and they will struggle. So Mm -hmm. I just think that it's a mixed bag. And I think you have to be super thoughtful, super careful, and be super, super diligent about editing, proofreading, and making sure you're submitting the right document to the right law school. Mm -hmm. Dean McShay, did you want to offer any points of clarification or context regarding that statement that was made about your school? Yeah, sure. And um, it's a comment that I make quite often, but not quite in that same context. The reality is, is that BC is a school that does not have a YBC statement. So for us, I am not looking for you to regurgitate our programs or any of that. I want to learn about you. And it is the admissions committee opportunity for us to do that, to build that connection. In the event that you have put together your best work, your strongest application, then you're answering all the questions that I need to have answered to get to a decision whether or not to invite you to be a member of the community. The context for the timing of the process is really centered around thinking out your entire application season and having some options later in the cycle. 
For a school that does not require a why us statement, by the time it, it, you know, I'm down to looking at the wait, the waiting list, I have a limited amount of time. I'm looking for people who are serious about us. And there are a number of things that you can do. And so the context is if ever you were to create a why a specific school statement for a school that doesn't require it, then the wait list might be a time for you to do it because you are taking some additional time to get familiar with that community and to articulate from your experience with that community why it makes sense for you to be a part of it. Maybe you visited campus, engaged with students, attended events, who knows what the case may be. But that's just an added tool in your arsenal to navigate what could be a really kind of gray area, which is waitlist, right? And so again, letters of continued interest, letters of additional letters of recommendation, and if you have a why, that school statement, that would be a great time in which to, to, to share it. I think it would have a different meaning at that particular point, especially for a school that doesn't have it as a requirement. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, we know that for candidates applying this cycle, especially schools in the T14, ideally people will have already submitted their applications, right? Because we're getting quote unquote late in the cycle for some schools. Dean Mack, for your school, what is ideal timing for applicants to submit applications? And when would you say you're kind of getting to the turning point of things being a little bit late and kind of being at a point where candidates are starting to lose opportunities in terms of admissions and scholarship dollars? So I, I want to reiterate a point that I've heard made several times. The ideal time for an individual is when your application can be the strongest. So if you need your fall semester grades as a senior or whatever your final year is in undergrad, then maybe applying at the end of December over break is the ideal time for you. If you're taking the November or the January LSAT and you need that LSAT score to be as strong as possible, it might be smart for you to apply right after the new year. If the letter of recommendation you need is from a faculty member that is on leave in the fall and they've promised you that they can get it to you January 10th, I think everything is nuanced. So Whenever your application is the strongest, that's when you should apply. If you are applying to an institution that historically has released 80% of its decisions by January, you might want to think about that a year in advance and start thinking about who am I asking to write these letters of recommendation for me? Are my grades ready to go at the end of my junior year, as opposed to needing another semester or two of grades? So it's not, we're not looking for complete grades for any, unless a school says you must have working experience and you have to have already had your bachelor's degree conferred, then it's okay if you're applying and you're in your last year of your undergraduate work. But if those grades could be stronger, you might want to wait in time the submission of your application with whenever you're going to have the strongest materials top to bottom as possible. Mm -hmm. So to follow that question up, Dean Krim, is an applicant taking the February LSAT for a March application deadline at a significant advantage, disadvantage in a scholarship department? So that is a great question. And I definitely think it will vary a lot depending on the school, right? So we have a priority application deadline of March 1. We also have a final deadline of May 1. And it so it depends on the year for one. For scholarships, we do try to award throughout the cycle. 
as funds are available. We do make that effort, but that can also vary from year to year. And then as far as timing, two years ago, application cycle, March was really, really late this past cycle, you know, not not as bad, but it, it varies, right? So the earlier, the better, but I, re, I, you know, sort of second what Dean Max said, you know, in terms of when the applicant can put forth the best application. So if February is, you know, the best timing, I recommend if possible, submitting the application ahead of receiving the test score, not mandatory, but worth considering if that's the test. But I know there are schools that don't accept February. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind as well. That's great. I have a couple of folks in the audience who have shared that they have, you know, 10 plus years of work experience and they're wondering, you know, how they can best highlight and kind of maximize that experience within their application materials. Is is the resume really the only place we know that nobody wants kind of a regurgitation of the resume and the personal statement? So how do we really kind of drive point home the point that we have like this great experience? Dean McShay, I'll start with you. Sure. So thank you for that question from the audience. And I focus in on the resume first before I dive into the rest of the application. And one of the reasons that I do is because you can get a lot of information that helps the rest of the application come together. So I look at the resume for context. I look at it for professional judgment. I look at it for skill sets. And so as a non-traditional student, how might you approach this application process? I think one of the first things is to focus on your skill set. It is my, and this isn't always the case, but it is my hope that there's some tremendous experience or a depth or a richness to the experience that can help enhance the academic experience at my institution, right? And for those who are developing their professional identity to go on and be stewards of the law, representing people, you know, in a a variety of different ways. And so focusing on the skill set would probably be one of the key things that a non-traditional candidate can do, which is different from the standard application things. I think, you know, again, we're, we're looking at standard across all applicants, regardless of what your background is. But the assumption is that perhaps a non-traditional student is coming with a certain level of depth that might or may not be, you know, the same for different types of applicants. So that's one. The second is to really tell your story. Again, your lived experience, your depth is going to be helpful in giving us context and letting us know whether or not you've developed the skill sets and the ability to navigate through our educational experiences. I think this holds true for all students, but in particular, with non-traditional students who are working professionals, think of the financial, I guess, implications of stopping your professional career and doing law school for three or four years. And I say all four years because there are some schools who have part-time programs that could complement your working experiences. But many, my institution that I'm speaking for right now does not have a part-time program. Therefore, you have to plan and think about the financial implications of stopping your career journey for a three-year period and becoming a full-time student. Most schools, including BC, we won't police whether or not you are working or not, but it has its way of showing up in the performance. And that could hinder some of the things that you have access to. So you wouldn't want to hinder any of your opportunities because you couldn't let go of the job. I think some planning will help and some counseling. Talk to all of us. If you are in a particular region and you want to go to law school, either full-time or part-time, talk to the schools that are in that region so that you get a sense of what your options are before you jump into the process. 
And of course, planning for test prep and letters of recommendation. If you are detached from an academic experience, that will take some time for you to think about what is, what's the lens that you're trying to, what is the narrative that you're trying to put together in your overall application and who might be the best representatives of that component of your background to tell that story. So give yourself some time for that as well. So planning, tell your story and focus on your skill sets would be the things that all candidates should do. But I think in addition for non-traditional candidates. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, Dean Smith, is there any special advice that you would give to folks who might be 10 plus years out and are now looking at coming back to school and joining the force? Like, is there is there any difference or kind of anything that they should be considering when they're looking specifically at these kinds of opportunities? Well, I would say since there is a different set of of factors that which may be, you know, which may be under consideration. I know it may be more prudent to, you know, look at schools which are, you know, close to where you want to be. You know, maybe there are families, maybe there are children, maybe there are other considerations. So, so you know, you definitely have to really consider your own personal reasons, you know, and what the long, you know, what the long game is, you know, what are your your goals um, once you once you graduate. I think part of it too is just understanding and appreciating what you are bringing to, you know, what you'll bring to to the law school dynamic. I think it is understanding and appreciating that your experiences will be valued. And we are really, as Dean McShay said, we are really, we invite that because of what it provides in the, the classroom discussions and, and everything. So I think ultimately it comes down to don't shy away. Don't be afraid to tell your story. Don't think that that's something that we devalue because we absolutely appreciate it. And, you know, we, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, you always hear about, you know, diversity and things of that nature. Your experience is a big part of what we are trying to build into our class because it invites the discourse. You know, you kind of act as, you know, that person that your classmates, your future colleagues, you know, they appreciate that experience as well as your professors, because there's a different sense of connection with your experience and your maturity and what and the messaging that they are trying to convey. So ultimately, your experience is valued. Understand and appreciate that. Don't shy away from it and figure out, you know, the best you can how your experiences kind of relate to what your intended long-term goals are. Now, Dean Heck, how does your application review process change, if at all, as you approach the end of the application cycle? You know, I think the biggest part of that is we filled a certain number of seats. It becomes even more competitive than what it was when we started in, you know, September, October, November, because then we have all the seats in the world. We're getting closer to very, very few number of seats. So a candidate that maybe we would have admitted in the fall, now that it is later in the cycle, is now one of many candidates with the same kind of credentials and backgrounds and years of experience and everything else. So it just continues to get more highly competitive. And so that's why when we talk about applying early, it's because it is to your advantage. I saw a couple of questions, you know, too, about LSATs and GPAs being lower. If you're at the end of the cycle and you're now one of 500 people competing for five open seats and everyone has a lot of good stuff, those lower credentials are going to be much more harmful. Not that we're not still taking a holistic approach, but you're now one of many people with the the same credentials. And so that's where it kind of changes. I mean, we can make notes and say, you know, you really love a candidate, but you get to the point we don't have a spot at that point, you know, and it starts turning into wait list or potentially even rejection and stuff and wishing the student would have applied earlier or maybe having the discussion 
question of wait until next year and be on the front end of the cycle, you know, next year, which is a whole other type of conversation. That's helpful. I have a couple of questions that kind of overlap in terms of what the importance of a GPA in comparison to an LSAT score and having admitted a candidate who perhaps is below median on both indicators, but for some reason was still able to stand out. And one of the audience members asked, you know, if there is an example of a factor that made you overlook the the numbers and say yes. I'm going to give this one to Dean Mack. Sure. I I love this. I think we've all reiterated that numbers tell us certain things quantitatively about your ability, about how you're performing in an academic setting, about how you perform in a standardized setting. But everything else tells us who you are and who's going to be interacting with colleagues, classmates, alumni. And, And I think especially as I straddle admissions and the student affairs space, it's that piece that is really important. Who are you? Like Dean McShay said, what is the story that you're telling us with your resume? What are those experiences that when you go to our career development colleagues, which we've told you some of us have come from that space, how are they going to be able to assist you and provide support in the ways that they know best? How are they going to use what you're bringing to them already having acquired? So we're looking at everything. So for the candidate who is really successful, even if their numbers are just below indicators, I would say it is really dotting your I's and crossing your T's for that institution. And it's really one of those things where we know it when we see it. There isn't a specific perfect formula, but if you're putting your best foot forward, if you're authentic, like Dean Simmons said, right? If you are giving us everything that you can in this effort, that's how you set yourself apart, right? I think a lot of people rely on really strong numbers. Well, I'm at the 75th on both numbers. Great. And the rest of your effort level was below the 25th. That's not going to cut it, right? So everything needs to be on 100. If everything is not on 100, you're not going to be compelling for us, even with your great numbers. So numbers don't, you know, if you don't have the strong numbers, you don't want us to rely on the numbers solely. If you do, you want us to, right? Like, it's like pick a side, right? So, So we're really trying to value the humanity in each of the applicants who are submitting applications to us, like value our time and our passion and dedication and commitment to what we're doing and really give this effort your full attention for each institution or just apply to three or four schools. Literally, a lot of people apply to 20 or 25. I read the Reddits, y'all. Don't do that (laughs) if you don't want to put in 100% effort for all 20 institutions. If all you have in you is 10, apply to those 10. But that's really what matters no matter where you fall on our number range spectrum. Before I get to my last question, Dean Simmons, I'm going to pose this audience question to you. How much does a year of full-time legal experience post-graduation detract from a less-than-stellar GPA? Thanks, Taj. So it doesn't really work like that. I think, you know, if you listen to what my colleagues have been sharing this evening, and particularly the last couple comments from the group, that's not how it really works. The reality is that that is one factor that we will take into consideration. You know, we are using data to kind of help inform our decisions. And so not only are we trying to, you know, as Dean Trey said, holistic file review. And if you think about all the points that Dean Smith and Dean Mack and Dean Heck and Dean Krim also shared, 
The reality is that we're comparing you to a group of people at a point in time in the pool as it relates to our goals and based on the number of seats we have left, et cetera. And so if that particular work experience is is so weighty that you've actually done work that makes us think, whoa, irrespective of what her grades show, she actually has the writing chops. She has the time management skills that also has to align with what your letters of recommendation then say. It also needs to align with what you put in terms of your resume and those bullet points that, you know, when, when Dean McShay was talking specifically about that work experience, it still has to align. And so the reality is that it's not going to detract from your GPA because your GPA is what it is and it tells its own story. Your resume, your letter of recommendation, et cetera, will tell a different part of the story. And your goal with those things are to kind of say, hey, by the way, and of course not, hey, but dear admissions committee, by the way, I know you see that my GPA is not strong, is not as competitive as some of your other candidates. But here's where I can make up for that in terms of my work experience, my work ethic, my time management skills, my problem solving skills, and the amount of writing that I've had to do in the last couple of years to kind of demonstrate that I can actually handle the rigor of law school, period. So it's not a detraction. It's just another factor. And that's a better way of thinking about it. I would love all of you to stop thinking about this process from this deficit model and that you're all coming in and that something has to erase something else. It doesn't work like that. Each thing stands on its own and your job as a candidate is to highlight the strengths and acknowledge the weaknesses and have us kind of focus more on those strengths and how you're going to basically be a strong student irrespective of those weaknesses. So we're in the last few minutes of our panel and one of my favorite admission sessions is always like a do's and don't with respect to the admissions process. And so for each of my panelists, please think of a brief piece of advice that you would share with the audience today, one thing that you recommend that they do, and one thing that you recommend they avoid. Dean Heck? I thought I had more time to think about that. No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know, I think the biggest thing to not do is to spend the time reading Reddit to try and figure out how you can beat everybody else out. This isn't about everybody else. This is about you. We're not trying to admit all of the people being the same in the applicant pool and everyone is looking for that magic bullet, which is why they're reading all of these things instead of talking to the law schools. You know, it's a matter of you need to be you and think of yourself as your advocate. And as one of my colleagues always says, you're your first client. And so this is about you representing you. So don't read all of the, you know, Reddits and all of those things and cross compare. Half the people on there aren't giving the exact numbers that they are anyway. And half of the other people are also giving you incorrect information. And all of you are applying to law school, most of you for the first time. And so let's be real. No one on there really has more advice. So that's my biggest don't. I think my biggest do is really spend some time thinking about where you want to apply. I'm very blessed to be on this panel and I look at my other colleagues and I have known everyone on this panel for 20 years, some of you guys, and we work in law schools because we enjoy working in higher ed and we want you to come to our schools, but we also are equally as concerned about you finding the right fit for you. And sometimes that may be a school that is closer with your range of numbers or closer with something else. And so I think the biggest thing is to really sit down and think like, what is going to be a good fit for you? And just because something may look good on paper or something that you saw, do the soul searching and figure out like, where am I going to be the happiest? Because I'm going to succeed more when I find the place that is the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. Dean McShay. Thank you so much. (laughs) Dean, heck, you took one of my thoughts immediately out of my, my mouth. 
So I'll, I'll reframe it a little bit. So I think my piece of advice would be, my positive piece of advice would be to use your best professional judgment at every point of the admissions process, whether it is when you visit campuses or interact with people over the phone or via email. Remember, these are professional exchanges and all of us have different tracking mechanisms and processes. So everything that you submit to your application, it might land somewhere. So be sure that, you know, you're using your, your professional in each of your messages. You represent yourself well when you visit campuses and that you are taking that time to craft your application using your best professional judgment. The opposite side of that is this, I guess this is when you have used your best professional judgment, you won't do this thing. And that is oversharing oversharing in your application. Again, this is a professional document. When you apply for the bar exam, your application will be a part. Your admissions application will be a part of that overall file. Maybe that differs from states. I don't know. But the reality is, is that it is going to live with you. And so if you overshare in your admissions application, that same thing that you have overshared with is going to be a part of your professional record, you know, as you apply for the bar. And, you know, maybe it's 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 not such a bad thing that we don't get to yes in the application process. But I know when I when I see a student who's overshared on certain things and I feel uncomfortable, you know, now with the information that I have, don't make me question whether or not I can give you an offer, right? And so so that would be my piece. Professional judgment, there are positive aspects of that. And then oversharing would probably be the, one of the not so positive aspects of it. So thank yeah. you. Dean Smith? Along with everything that's already been said, I think one of the do's is absolutely read the directions, the instructions, and adhere to them. Mm -hmm. Oh, don't think that, oh, I can just do this. I can do this because, hey, they're not going to read it. They're not going to pay attention to that. Oh, no, we pay attention to it. It was said earlier that each school has spent time and effort and energy into crafting our, our applications and our instructions according to what we want. So we are going to pay attention to things that are placed in the application. Case in point, as was said kind of earlier, you know, you never know who's reading your application. It could be a faculty member. It could be someone in student affairs. It could be someone who's a practicing attorney. It could be a judge. You just never know. And with that means that we are also trying to see if you're paying attention, you know, if you're if you are adhering to the, you know, to the, the standards that we've set. So absolutely do do that. Don't be combative. Don't have, you know, don't be aggressive with my team. Understand that we talk and I listen to my team. It was said earlier that, you know, like I said, hey, it could be a situation where it, where it's a whitelist. It could be a situation where we are refueling files. Someone is calling and, you know, the disposition with my, with my team was not so pleasant. I absolutely will pay attention to that. So please don't be combative. Don't be aggressive. Hey, there is a way to, to present, to ask questions, you know, but ultimately just, you know, be, be agreeable, you know, within the process. Thank you. Dean Mack. So one of my friends gave me a tip that I can share with you. And, and it was along the lines of what I was thinking, but it was really to take your time. Law school's not going anywhere. So, so really think about when it's the right time for you. There, there is not a right answer for the group. It is definitely an individual decision. And along those same lines, start the way you want to finish. And what I mean by that is I think that prospective law students are 
overwhelmingly high achieving and very driven and focused. And maybe you don't take care of yourself in the midst of all of this achievement. And then you get to law school and you treat law school like it's the end destination. Like I got here. And and there's so much more after we say yes. So just thinking about once you get through this process, you've got to take care of yourself and leave something in the tank for when you get to three years, six semesters, finals, bar applications, licensure. Like this is just the start, okay? The LSAT was child's play in comparison to what you are telling us you want to embark upon. So really think about how am I taking care of myself as I am working towards achieving this goal. So, I mean, I really think that that's my do and my don't, right? Like you must take care of yourself. If you are single focused on just the achievement and you're not doing what you need to do so that you can actually be present and engaged while you're chasing these goals, it's going to crash and burn. And and I see it once we get to the other side, right? You, you took all our advice, you're doing all the things, and then you get there and you didn't take care of yourself. You didn't take your time. You weren't as intentional and thoughtful about what you were doing and, and it crashes and burns. So really, you know, think about all of that and, and make the best decision for you within your circumstances at the time. Thank you. Dean Krim. So my do is something that's kind of touched on earlier, but be true to yourself, be authentic, be honest with yourself, right? And for the, over the course of this process, it's like, oh, maybe law school is not what I should be doing with my life. That's okay. Or, you know, not applying to X law school, you know, that's fine. You know, we often ask the question, like, what are you looking for in the ideal candidate? We don't have sort of, you know, a template for that, but it will come across in the, the material that you provide for us. So just be really true to yourself. Ask yourself some really, you know, thoughtful questions. And then my don't is don't make any assumptions, right? So, you know, and that, you know, on a lot of different areas. So ask questions. So you don't make assumptions. If you receive a decision and there's no scholarship and you know, this school normally submits in scholarships with their admission letter, don't assume you received one. Ask a question, you know, just, just question, asking questions is just always best. And I encourage you to do that. We're here to be helpful. Thank you so much. Dean Simmons. So I'm going to wrap mine all up. You know, just be mindful of the fact that you only need one school to say yes. And so I think some of you get so caught up in where like saying things like, I'm only going to go if I get into this school at this level or or I get this amount of money. And the reality is that if you really want to be an attorney or a judge or an advocate, you're going to go to the ABA law school that gives you that opportunity because there are thousands and thousands of people who are not given this opportunity. And so be mindful of that. I think all the other things are kind of like being realistic, being thoughtful and, and challenging yourself. The last thing is be thoughtful about what you're submitting, though. I think this is kind of tied to a don't. Like I find a lot of candidates are struggling with writing an adversity statement or diversity statement when it's really the other and they think they have to write a diversity statement and nothing they've talked about is going to contribute to the diversity or dialogue of the schools they're applying to. And so not everyone has to, to submit these things. But if you ask your question, what is the purpose of this document? What is the purpose of this tool? What do I want the admissions committee to know about me? You probably find yourself in a situation where you're pu- putting together a really thoughtful, cohesive application which will serve you well. And at the end of the day, again, you only need one school to say yes, but what you want to have done is you want to have done everything in your power to submit the most competitive application possible. And if you do those things, follow directions, be authentic, 
be genuine. Take your time. Plot and plan a year or so out. You're going to put yourself in a, a situation to be successful and hopefully be on the other side of an offer letter and be happy and healthy and whole, as Dean Matt pointed out before you even start law school, which is super, super important because it is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And so that's something to be mindful of. Over a hundred years of law school admissions experience on this panel right now. I just want y'all to understand the people that are here talking to you. Okay, they're cracking up right now. You know, we've reached the conclusion of tonight's panel, and this is just the first of our admissions themes roundtable talk. So watch for a January date where we'll reconvene to continue our conversation. I've been able to grab quite a few of the questions that we were not able to get to tonight for next time. And yes, someone does have a birthday tomorrow, Dean Simmons. Happy early birthday to you. And until then, thank you so much to my panelists. We really appreciate you being here. And thank you to our listeners. Until next time, everyone be safe and have a great night. Hi, it's JY again. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're studying for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevenstage.com we can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.